First John, reading in the final chapter, chapter 5 of First John, and the short concluding section, verses 18 through 21. Now you will remember that this is part of the postscript, as it were, the concluding remarks to John's great letter, and yet in these three or so verses there is matter enough for us to consider together this evening. First John 5, from verse, We are in him who is true, even in Jesus Christ his Son. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Thus reads the living and abiding word of God. Now, many of you here this evening need no reminder that these studies in the book of First John are drawing, finally, to a close. This book that has as its great theme, you will remember, Light and Love, so that the title for this series of expositions through it has been, I believe, a fitting one, The Fellowship of Light and Love. And as John has brought to our attention again and again the three searching and applicable tests of the true Christian, the doctrinal test that our beliefs must be rightly based, the social test that we must live in love and communion with one another in the body of Christ, and the moral test that right doctrine must lead to right living, to righteousness of life. We have explored these great themes and many others in this book as they have interconnected themselves and woven themselves together in this great portion of the New Testament scriptures. Now, as we come to these several verses here this evening, we must say that the basic purpose of the aging Apostle John has almost, but not quite, been fulfilled. His purpose being, you remember, to provide assurance to his flock, to give them those marks by which they can distinguish the genuine profession of faith, the genuine Christian, from that which is counterfeit and false. In the face of the Antichrist who had arisen, even in John's day, and was spreading their false teaching all through the New Testament church. Now, as I say, his basic purpose is almost fulfilled. And it is entirely appropriate, I suggest to you, that this great letter with these rich and interwoven themes should end with three final affirmations, all introduced, you notice, by the repetitive phrase in verse 18 and verse 19 and verse 20, we know. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. Verse 18. Verse 19. We know that we are children of God with its consequences. And verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. It is indeed a summary of much that the apostle has been teaching through the whole letter. And it moreover reminds us of the importance of affirmations in the Christian life. 
Beloved, I need to remind you, ere we begin the study this evening, the importance of affirmations and being able to make such affirmations without any apology whatsoever. Because we're living in a day and an age when so many today despise and reject affirmations and convictions and would seek even to eliminate them from the life of the Christian church, supposedly in the interest of greater unity, as in the ecumenical movement, and greater harmony among Christians. Just as some of you may remember, the compatriot of Martin Luther at the time of the Protestant Reformation, a man called Erasmus, had first supported Martin Luther, but as that great man's convictions gradually formed according to the scripture, he saw that these strong views and doctrines that Luther was bringing out from the scriptures would endanger the Christian church as Erasmus saw it, would fracture it and break it up. And so Erasmus began to write a book on the freedom of the human will in spiritual matters and to attack Luther's dogmatism as he saw it. And some of you will know that Luther responded in that book that is still in print today, The Bondage of the Will, in which he said this, Listen, nothing, said Luther, is more familiar and characteristic among Christians than assertion. Take away assertions, and you take away Christianity. Why do you, he says to Erasmus, you of all people, assert that you find no satisfaction in assertions and that you prefer an undogmatic temper to the other? And Luther's implication was that Erasmus, of course, was asserting something himself. Well, this is John's belief. He would have been entirely in accord with Martin Luther but the Christian faith, beloved, consists in affirmations and assertions, and it's impossible to have Christianity without them. We know, we know, we know. Not only in John's age, not only in Luther's age, but in our age, these affirmations are absolutely essential for the Christian faith to exist in the world and to grow in our hearts. Now, there are three of them this evening, three great certainties centering on these verses 18 through 20 that we have read together. Now, you'll notice that the first one of them is what I've called power over sin in verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, says John, and the evil one, that is the devil, does not touch him. Now, you'll remember very readily that we've come across this teaching already more than once in the letter of First John, and we've dealt with what appears to be a seeming contradiction that occurs again in verse 18. You remember what it is that in chapter 1, John had given us the repeated declaration that if anyone claims that he does not sin, he is either a liar or he is self-deceived. 
And John repeated the same thought in chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. But again seemed to be on the surface something of a contradiction, implying that, indeed, the Christian does not sin. Now you remember that the key to understanding those passages, and indeed to verse 18 that is before us this evening, is simple, that the contradiction is more apparent than it is real. Namely, that the verbs here and in the earlier passages, as I reminded you, are all in the present tense. And the present tense in New Testament Greek refers normally to habitual and continuous action. So that what he is saying to us for the final time in verse 18, in the words we know that anyone born of God does not sin, that is how we should literally translate it, his meaning is, should not be found in the habitual continuing practice of sin. And that is why the NIV here, as in the earlier places, has added the word continue, but is not in the original. It is an interpolation, but thankfully a correct and scriptural interpolation at this point. So John is not teaching that the Christian cannot fall into sin, but what he is teaching, and this is the glorious affirmation he brings to our attention again, is that he cannot continue in sin indefinitely. In other words, if I am truly born of God, the new birth will result inevitably in new behavior. Well, you might say to me this evening, we've been down this road before. We've seen it at least twice, as I reminded you in the earlier chapters of First John. What is new about his final reference to this great truth and assertion here? Well, the answer is, there is something wonderfully new and important here. Look again at verse 18. Remember that the reasons that John had given why the Christian cannot continue in sin in chapter 1 and in chapter 3 was because he had God's nature abiding in him. That new nature that has come to us by virtue of our regeneration that has declared itself against the dominion of sin. Sin is present, but sin no longer reigns because we have a new nature through our regeneration, the very nature of God himself. But you notice that in verse 18 of this concluding passage, the reason is very different. And the assurance that John brings to us is due to the fact, he says, that he that was born of God keeps us. Now, who is he that was born of God? And commentators differ at this point. But in my own mind, and I think in the mind of the best commentators upon this passage, there can be no doubt that the reference is to the Lord Jesus Christ. The difficulty arises because some of the inferior texts of the New Testament Greek manuscripts render keep as keep himself. In other words, he that is born of God, namely the Christian, is to keep himself from the evil one touching him. So it is the Christian who does the keeping, 
But I think the weight of evidence is very clear, both textually and in terms of the context of the passage, that he that was born of God is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, taken in that sense, the verse stresses our kinship with the Lord Jesus, and it reminds us that his incarnation came about in order that he might rescue us from temptation and the power of temptation, he himself having suffered that for us and in our stead. He that was born of God, he that underwent all the fiery trials and many more than we experience, he who resisted Satan, he who quoted the word of God to the devil in the wilderness, the scripture says you shall not tempt the Lord your God, and so forth. He who went down this very path that we are going down, he is the one who keeps us in the hour of our trial. Now, that is what is new, you see, in this great concluding assertion that the Apostle John gives to us. We have not only a new nature, beloved, which hates sin and abhors it and strives and battles against it, we have not only been emancipated from the slavery to sin by God imparting this new nature to us, but we have the personal presence of him who was begotten of God, the Lord Jesus himself, who has taken up his abode within us and who has guaranteed by his very indwelling presence to keep us safe from the clutches of the evil one. Beloved, is this not a great and glorious assertion? In the face of that great antagonist to the Christian, it's strange, isn't it, how the morning and the evening mesh together today. The Christian is in the wilderness of this world we heard this morning. He is dwelling in Meshach and the tents of Kedah, surrounded by an atmosphere that is hostile to the things of God. And here we are this evening with the Apostle bringing us to view the Christian life in exactly the same way, through the same perspective as it were. The fierce antagonism of the evil one who would touch us, who literally in the Greek would take hold of us and carry us away, who would do us harm this one of whom we read in the further verse, verse 19, who holds the entire world in his power. However are we to escape his clutches, who is such a fierce and determined adversary to the people of God, who would destroy us from the face of the earth if it were not for the Lord Jesus' faithful defense of his people. Now isn't this a rich and glorious truth for us this evening hour? He that is begotten of God, says John, so indwells us that the evil one, in spite of all his machinations, cannot take us in to his clutches. Well, in a word, what he is giving to us as the first of these great assertions and affirmations 
is the great reformed doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You sometimes hear that we Calvinists take our doctrine just from a few select passages of Scripture. Well, isn't it wonderful to be able to say this evening with resounding conviction, we do not. We find these great doctrines, the reformed doctrines, everywhere in Scripture, and here in this most unlikely place of the postscript of this letter, we have the final perseverance of the saints. Because he that is born of God will keep us. Our eternal security is assured. And as I say to you, what a grand and glorious assertion this is that we have power and dominion over sin and the evil one shall not be able to touch us. Well, the second assurance follows, you notice, in verse 19, where we read the word, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, it's clear that the substance of this assertion is that we are children of God. That is where the emphasis in the verse begins to lie. And I want you to notice the wording in which the apostle brings that thought uh, to our minds. You notice that the affirmation is in the first person plural. We know that we are children of God. Now, when I draw your attention to that, it's very important, as you'll see in a moment, because in the preceding verse, verse 18, the contrast is very marked. If anyone born of God, says John, or rather anyone born of God, uh, does not sin. Now, it's important because here is what I would call apostolic assurance that is available to the Christian. I wonder if you understand what I mean. Let me explain for a moment. What John is doing here by a switch from the third person singular, anyone in verse 18, to the first person plural, we, in verse 19, is in effect saying that every Christian, the most ordinary and humble of believers, may have a degree and the nature of assurance that he is a child of God that is equivalent to the assurance the apostles themselves had. Because the we includes the Apostle John. It includes clearly the apostolic band, the twelve, when he uses the term we. And it's very interesting that we know less than the apostles, beloved, can know ourselves beyond any shadow of doubt or questioning, to be the real and genuine and authentic children of God. Now, why is that important? Well, obviously, because of all that we have been through in these long studies together, the Antichrists who are abroad in the world, the false teaching that abounds on every side, the seductiveness of the false cults and the persuasiveness of these eloquent religious leaders who come to us, as we have seen, even in the name and stead of Christ. 
And I begin to say, as I see their exotic experiences and hear their persuasive language, am I wrong and are they right? Do they have the truth? And am I lacking it? And what John, you see, is intent to do as this great letter draws to its finale is to reassure us again that we are the children of God. And we may know it in as certain a way as the very apostles of our Lord knew the certainty of their salvation in Christ and their calling to be the children of God. Where does that certainty come from? Well, we've already seen it. In the tests, the moral, the social, the doctrinal tests, if we can take these tests and apply them to our lives and the Holy Spirit witnesses within us that these things are true of us, we may have the same apostolic assurance of being God's children as the very apostles of our Lord so clearly possess. Now that's the first thing. But the second thing you notice from this persuasion of our sonship is that we need to remember in this dark world that such persuasion is indeed rare in the sense that it is limited to God's children. They alone are the privileged ones. It does not extend to everyone. We know that we are the children of God and, you notice, but the whole world is under the control of the evil one. There is no universalism, beloved, in the gospel of Christ, much as that is taught today in a weakened evangelicalism and an unbiblical ecumenism. The one who is not born of God is not kept by the one born of God. He does not have the assurance of sonship, says John. Indeed, he is under the power and dominion of the evil one, under the control of the devil. And you remember that this is precisely and in accord with the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 44, where Jesus, standing before his detractors, religious as they were, the priests and leaders, of the Jewish faith, said to them, you are of your father the devil, and the works of your father you will do. He was a liar from the beginning. And you see, the starkness of John's teaching is that there is no third alternative. Either a person is of God, or else he is under the power and dominion of the evil one. And that is why each of us who are Christians should earnestly seek the assurance that is spoken of in this verse. Do you lack assurance this evening? Are you unsure whether you are a child of God? Then I must say to you with great urgency, awake out of sleep. Turn from known sin. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Test your life by the marks that run through the whole of this great letter the social, the moral, the doctrinal tests, and plead with the Holy Spirit that he will enliven your title to eternal life and convince your heart 
as you look at it, that you may enter into this blessed heritage of God's people, which is assurance that they are not of this world, but are of the children of God. Now that's what John is saying to us. Just as Paul in Colossians 1 verse 13 says that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Or as John has said in his gospel, they are, in the words of Jesus, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And Jesus prayed, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth, as thou hast sent me into the world, so send I them. So this is the second affirmation, the second assertion, the second certainty that I am separated unto God, a child of God, here in this world to bear witness to him. And that is my calling. Where are you this evening? A child of God, or are you still under the power of the evil one? who is the prince of this world of darkness. There is no third alternative. Now thirdly, as we begin to draw to a close this evening, there is participation in the fellowship. If you look at verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him that is true, and we are in him who is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Well, it's the third of these great affirmations by John, and John Stott, one of the commentators, says that it is the most fundamental of all the three, and I believe he's right. Namely, that the Lord Jesus and nothing and no one else is the center of Christianity. He and he only is the one whom we so desperately need. And we may live and know ourselves to be in that fellowship that is both with the Father and the Son, and this, says John, is eternal life. Now notice quickly with me how John brings these great truths to us, this final, most glorious affirmation of all. Who is this Lord Jesus Christ, about whom we have been studying these many Sunday evenings together. Well, he's utterly unique, isn't he? At the beginning of verse 20, the Son of God, he says, has come. And what he is implying is that he has come into this world from another sphere. Just as if someone should phone me from their home and say to me, your wife has come to visit me. And I would immediately draw the conclusion, she's come from somewhere else. And the uniqueness about this Lord Jesus, who has brought us into eternal life, is that he became incarnate. He took our nature. He was enfleshed. He identified himself with sinful man for their salvation. And all of this implies his pre-existent state in glory. He's come from somewhere else. And this is not make-believe. 
And beloved, tonight we are not committed to make-believe. The virgin's birth is real. The thirty years' ministry of Jesus is real. The atonement for our sins is real on the cross of Calvary. His resurrection from the dead is real. The history of Jesus is real. And he was heard and seen and touched in our space-time continuum. And this has been John's burden all through, hasn't it? But this is history and it's happened in the face of all the denials of Gnosticism and today in the face of the denials of the historicity of Jesus by dialectical theology that would separate the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith and bring in another religion. The uniqueness of Christ is set before him. We know that the Son of God has come, says John, and he has given us, secondly, what? An understanding. Verse 20 in the middle. In other words, the capacity to know God. Now that's where we're going to finish this evening. A real experience of God. There are so many experiences abroad in the world today, aren't there? You can name them, and it seems they are legion in number. False experiences of so many world religions, so many cults, so many fragmentations of the Christian faith that contain some truth mixed with much error. But there is only one real experience in this world. And that is what the Lord Jesus, the unique Son of God, is able to give us. And you see, John's point is just this, that we are incapable of coming to that knowledge and experience by ourselves. We are incapable of spiritual sight until he comes and gives it to us. He gives us understanding. And that understanding, says John, is that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ, who is the true God and eternal life. My friend, as this letter closes, we are not born with the capacity for knowing God. We are given that capacity to understand the gospel message. It's just like the blind man in John's Gospel, chapter 9, whose eyes Jesus opened, you remember, by wetting the clay and anointing those blinded eyes so that he saw. And as that chapter goes on, there's not just a physical light that comes to his eyeballs. You read there's a spiritual light that comes to his mind and understanding as the enemies of Jesus oppress him. And as he begins to say, well, all I know is he opened my eyes. But he ends up saying, I know that no sinner could do a miracle like this. And he comes to Jesus and he worships him. The eyes of his spiritual understanding have been opened by the one who has come into this fallen world to give that kind of understanding to us. And that understanding is eternal life to know God and Jesus Christ.
whom he has sent to bring us into real union with the Father through the Son. My friend, as I finish this evening, what a great certainty this is. We know that we can participate in eternal life. Are you there this evening? Are these three certainties yours? Are you living in fellowship with the Father and the Son and knowing the current of eternal life flowing through you now? We don't wait till heaven comes. We begin to experience heaven on earth because these are the things we know. Do you know these things? And if you know them, your duty, as the final verse tells us, is to keep ourselves in these certainties that the life of God having begun in us will continue to flow through us and grow in us to all eternity. May God bless this concluding exposition of this letter and prepare our hearts as in these coming one or two Sunday evenings I want to wrap up the whole of this great message of 1 John with two concluding sermons. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight we're thankful that we are not an uncertain people, but there are things that we know. And may the great assertions and affirmations of the aged apostle truly bless our hearts and our souls this evening in the knowledge of Christ, whom to know is indeed already eternal life. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.